Alex Moza, and welcome to Winner Take All. We're back in the Florida office, and we're back to talk about how to fight back and win against big tech. So we've got some big news out of B2B. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about Grub Market and their investment from General Mills. We're also going to touch on Kojo, which we've talked about previously. Elon Musk is buying Twitter after all on another episode of We Called It, and we're going to cut to that. We've got some funny uh, texts that, that have now come out in the, in the deposition and in the discovery, I guess, rather, um, between Elon and a bunch of people that are sliding into his, uh, not his DMs, but I guess his, his text inbox. There's a good interview with the now CEO of Instacart that uh, Ben Thompson at Stratechery did. Um, it's a long interview per usual for Ben, but uh, there's some really interesting, couple interesting takeaways that I wanted to highlight. Then we also got some stuff on China, no surprise, both on their reliance for U.S. investor capital. Hmm, shocker. Just a continued exodus from the tech founders uh, to leave. And they're all kind of, it's all kind of related. So let's start out with fun stuff, which is that turns out Musk is going to buy Twitter next week and he's going to buy it for the same original price he had initially committed to, despite having uncovered what is most definitely criminal fraud by the officers and directors of that company with at least what looks like 20% spam bot activity when they have made on multiple occasions admissions that they have spam bot activity, but that it's less than 5% of their daily and monthly active users. Quite a big difference. We're not talking five. Well, we said it was less than five and it's maybe seven or eight. No, we're talking about a 400% increase. And we've actually talked about this on the show before, how Twitter's numbers don't make sense and how they're 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 able to just mad, magically if you look at their monthly active user numbers leading up to covid they were they were just flat they weren't going down they weren't going up and then covid they went up by like 5% um a year nothing amazing they they're always around like 30ish million monthly active users in the US which is really what mattered cuz that's where they make their advertising money but it was always they, they didn't have growth, but really why this spam bot thing is so important is because the spam bot activity is the difference for them saying, yeah, you know, we have flat growth, but we have more growth globally, right? Which is what they were saying to the markets. Instead, that story now being, we actually have declining growth. We're not staying flat at 30-ish million monthly active users. We're actually losing engagement. And that's actually what's been happening on Twitter, but they've been covering it up and they knew they were covering it up. And the guy who's now CEO is the main engineer who knows the data, knows the code better than anyone else, according to his text messages to Elon. These people should be held liable and accountable. They shouldn't actually benefit uh, from this payday that Elon is giving them. But, you know, a whole bunch of other ways that justice isn't being administered these days. So, just add this one to the list. So, meanwhile, if you look at the press the past few months, all the press was like, will Elon buy Twitter? And if we rewind and we say, well, let's look at this from, you know, 7 1 22 
till 9-1-22. All the news, right? He's abandoning the deal. They're going to sue. Um, tumultuous Twitter acquisition attempt. And uh, Elon Musk wanted to buy Twitter, or did he? Elon Musk is going to be sued by Twitter. So what do we think was going to happen? Well, here we go. Twitter does not reliably delete users' data after they cancel their accounts. This company has so many skeletons in this closet. I bet this is honestly part of Elon's plan, and I still think Elon wants to buy the company. But the guy's not an idiot. He doesn't need to spend an extra $10 billion if he's been actively lied to. And I think this amps up the pressure on Twitter, just cut a deal. So Elon didn't end up getting a discount on his original acquisition price, which is admittedly now much higher than what was appropriate. But he's still going through with it, I think, probably just because he has bigger fish to fry and more important things to focus on. And the guy's worth well over $100 billion. So like, what difference does 10 make? And it's not just 10 of his own money. He now has an, he has an investor contingent. And so it's a lot of his own money, but it's not all of his money. So he, he's lined up financing for the price, for the original price. And so he looks like he's going through with it. And I think he's got to focus on things at SpaceX and Tesla and other stuff, right? But why did he want to do this to begin with? Why was this show probably one of the, maybe not the only, but certainly one of the few places that was actually saying, yes, I think Twitter, I think Elon's still going to buy Twitter. And that's because the reasons he was buying this were less about, is it, you know, 44 billion or 35 billion? acquisition price and instead was conceptual and essentially look, finding value to say, hey, you've destroyed the value in this company because you've gone against the very grain of why the company exists, right? To properly facilitate the exchange of information and ideas. And they've gone very, 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 very far away from that. And that's why we on the show have been advocating for Jack Dorsey to step down, for for Elliott Management's activism, which didn't actually pan out too well inside of Twitter to get rid of Jack. Also saying Parag is not the right guy. Parag is definitely going to be bounced real quick uh, once this thing closes. He will get a package, so he'll be just fine and probably go get some other job, which he'll then continue to ruin as well. <clears throat> but that's neither here nor there. Let's look at some of these fun text messages. So you had right away... Mark Andreessen uh, sending him messages, sending Elon through his who, through Andreessen's app uh, called Signal, which then automatically deletes the messages. Um, and Andreessen was like, "Oh, I want to put in a quarter billion dollars out of our fund. We want to come in right away, no questions asked." And then uh, Musk responded within 27 minutes, saying, "Okay, sure." Andreessen took a screenshot of the of the messages because they the, the app deletes the messages and then sent that to Elon's team saying hey I talked to Elon he's good to let us invest right so Andreessen was quick with the draw to say I want to get in on this Larry Ellison was much slower Elon was trying to Elon was trying to reach and get in and talk to to Larry and Ellison responded sorry let's try to talk tomorrow which maybe this article is just making a big to-do out of it uh, or whatever it is. But so Elon was pursuing Larry. Mark Andreessen was pursuing Elon. 
Uh, the CEO of Morgan Stanley was aggressively pursuing Elon, lighting him up, lighting up Elon's number two, giving them pointers, da 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 da, all these things because he wanted to represent um, Elon and and make a bunch of fees on this deal. So those those are interesting, but here here are some of the fun fun ones. So Elon has has a bunch of texts with Parag. You can kind of see it here, right? So. Self is referring to Elon and then Prague is Prague, right? Um, but it would be good to sync up. I can talk tomorrow night or anytime this weekend. I love our conversation, says Elon to Prague. Uh, they're coordinating, you know, Prague saying, I think this would be good for the company. Elon says, great. I have a ton of ideas and let me know if I'm pushing too hard. I, I just want Twitter to be maximum amazing, says Elon. Prague, I want to hear all your ideas and I'll tell you which ones I'll make progress on versus not and why. And in this phase, just just good to spend as much time with you. Let's have my product and engineering team talk to you to ingest information on both sides. Elon says, I'd like to understand the technical details of the Twitter code base. This will help me calibrate the dumbness of my suggestions. I wrote heavy duty software for 20 years. Uh, Prague goes, I used to be CTO and have been in our code base for a very long time. So I can answer many of your questions. Elon says, I interface way better with engineers who are able to do hardcore programming than than with MBA types. And uh, Prague goes, in our next convo, treat me like an engineer instead of CEO and let's see where we get to. And Elon says, frankly, I hate doing management stuff. I kind of don't think anyone should be the boss of anyone, but I love helping solve technical and product design problems. Looks like Jack, we figured out why Jack left Twitter or one of the reasons why Jack left Twitter, Jack's very passionate about crypto and all this stuff with the blockchain. Jack thinks that a new platform is needed. It can't be a company. This is why I left, Jack says. When uh, He says, it must be an open source protocol founded, funded by a foundation of source that doesn't own the protocol, only advances it. A bit like what Signal has done. It, it can't have an advertising model. So Jack has talked about how he felt like you know, being a public company, the board, having this advertising model has certainly done a disservice to Twitter and its ability to deliver on its vision of the future, but also failing to recognize all the things that Jack did to hurt Twitter and why Elon is actually interested in buying it in the first place is not because of the problems that Jack is pointing out needs to be open source and it can't have advertising. That's not why Elon's buying Twitter. Elon's buying Twitter because he's saying, hey, Jack, you screwed this thing up because you started to silence your actual creators. You started to be the thought police. You started to be all the very things that go against the very grain of what Twitter was supposed to do to facilitate the open exchange of ideas and information. And you have now created an army of thousands of people that silence that kick people off the platform, modify the content of their tweets, and do this with a lot of bias, not just political bias, a whole slew of bias that we've been covering on this show for years. Jack still fails, you know, he latches onto this thing over here, then still fails to recognize his own wrongdoings and his own errors. And he, I guess, thinks that an open source protocol that isn't tainted by advertising will fix all these things, but. The guy's on another planet. Damn. A lot of reasons why we've been saying Jack needed to go for a long time. But still nice that they're friendly, right? 
Jason Calacanis is looking a little, little vulnerable, looking a little thirsty, you could call it. Um, wants to be CEO of Twitter and uh, is hitting Elon up a lot with maybe not so much reciprocity from, from, from Elon messaging him back. When Musk asked if he wanted to be a strategic advisor of the deal pound out, Calacanis swore the text equivalent of an oath Twitter's future owner, board member, advisor, whatever, you have my sword. Uh, put me in the game, coach. Twitter CEO is my dream job. His enthusiasm appears to have gotten him into hot water with Musk soon after. What is going on with you marketing an SPV to randos? This is not okay, Musk wrote in May. Morgan Stanley and Musk right hand man think you are using our friendship not in a good way. Calacanis was taking an investment allocation in the take private deal to... Calacanis's kind of audience, I guess, of like, you know, podcast listeners, or maybe he was doing it through AngelList. I don't know. And so, you know, Elon had said, yeah, hey, here's a chunk of this. You can take it. And then Calacanis is earning fees. He's earning management, probably carry fees on other people's money that he's then kind of marketing out to just whoever, right? Um, his network. And then Morgan Stanley and Elon's, Elon's right hand man is saying, Elon, like this guy is just taking advantage and not truly genuine. Uh, and then so he has to cover for himself at the end of that. Rogan is stoked. I really hope you get Twitter and we should throw a big party. So there's a lot of people, right, that um, recognize truly Twitter's censorship problem. Parag, as we talked about from day one on this whole escapade now many months ago, Still then, still now, has failed to recognize the error in their ways, including Jack Dorsey, in censorship being at the heart of this and free speech being at the heart of this. That is why I felt confident Twitter would still buy this thing or that Elon would still buy this thing when, when all is said and done. And then at some point in the relationship with Parag, then you know, obviously things between Elon and Parag started to um, unravel. And so Prague messages him and says, you're free to tweet, is Twitter dying or anything else about Twitter? But it's my responsibility to tell you that's not helping me make Twitter better in the current context. Next time we speak, I'd like you to provide you to, to, I'd like to you, I'd like you, okay, this isn't me. I, I don't have a problem reading English. This thing just doesn't make sense. I'd like you to provide a perspective, I'm guessing he's saying, on the level of internal distraction right now and how, it, how it's hurting our ability to do work. I hope the AMA will help people get to know you. And I'd like the company to get to a place where we are more resilient and don't get distracted, but we aren't there right now. Elon's response, what did you get done this week? <laughs> Completely dismissing this. It just confirms everything, right? Parag is not the guy. It wasn't the guy, still isn't the guy doesn't understand that Twitter is radioactive. It's just got a virus. It's got a big virus running through it, and it needs to be scrubbed clean. Calacanis actually proposed Calacanis's mechanism for how to get rid of that virus was pretty funny, actually. Day zero, sharpen your blades, boys. Two days a week, office requirement equals 20% voluntary departures. <laughs> Just the wrong culture in this company, a culture that has gotten way too comfortable with being like 1984 thought police. It's not the whole point of this. So I love it. 
I think Elon's still going to make a bunch of money on this, by the way, even though he's buying it, even though the directors and officers in that company have willingly and actively committed fraud, I think he and his investors will still make a bunch of money, assuming they can get the right CEO, clear house, and do all the things that I think they will be able to do. They'll actually be able to get a lot of growth back. There will be a lot of growth on Twitter once you return it to the core transaction, right? And make the core transaction pure again and untainted. This company called Grub Market, they were in our top 10. They were our top 10 of our top 50 B2B marketplace ranking, which we published last year. At a $2 billion valuation, they raised $120 million. And the big notable strategic investor here isn't Tiger Global and other, and other big name VCs, but it's General Mills, right? One of the biggest food suppliers, brands, manufacturers in the world. So the company is very interesting, and, and, and I'll talk more about their strategy in a second, but the big takeaway here, why this General Mills news is so big and why actually Bloomberg is highlighting General Mills back scrub market at more than $2 billion valuation is because this is actually a continuation of a trend we're seeing across B2B distribution and B2B marketplaces is you're actively seeing suppliers and manufacturers, we've been talking about this now for, for pretty much this entire year of 2022, actively enable the B2B marketplace disruptors, right? These B2B marketplaces are effectively unbundling traditional linear B2B distribution as we know it, right? Uh, matching buyers and sellers, providing better product data and connectivity capabilities, doing payments and net terms financing, doing logistics and fulfillment, right? If you think about all the core functions of a B2B distributor that's done in a linear fashion. So instead of matching buyers and sellers in a marketplace asset light model, B2B distributors are buying inventory from suppliers on balance sheet, warehousing it, and then selling it to business buyers, right? So they're doing it in a very linear and a much more capital intensive manner. So these marketplaces have basically figured out how to kind of go through that whole spectrum. It's much more than just the buying and selling is my point, right? They're doing the buying and selling and then they're doing much more. And that's how you get to a unicorn multi-billion dollar valuation. And I'll talk more about what Grub Market is doing there and, and how they've gotten there and why they're in our our top 10 of our top 50 ranking last year. That was last year before they've raised all this money. Now, hundreds of millions of dollars in additional equity when they're in our top 10 last year. But the thing to me, which is most shocking, is how manufacturers are actively supporting, not just part with participation, but with dollars and strategic synergies to enable these disruptors to do exactly this. Just two weeks prior to this deal being announced, we've already covered this on the show, you had another digital disruptor called Kojo, which is in the construction vertical, raise more money with Schneider, one of the largest electrical manufacturers participating in that fundraise. Earlier in 2022, Schneider also invested in different kinds of marketplace disruptor called Run, which is kind of like Instacart. I'm going to talk about Instacart in a second here but Instacart for same-day construction goods. And, and I've got a bunch of other examples. I've talked about uh, manufacturers buying tech companies. CMix Ventures is investing in a bunch of things. And uh, Heidelberg's Cement changed their name to Heidelberg like Materials. And all these manufacturers are the biggest manufacturers, many of them. If you're the leading or one of the top manufacturers in your space, 
You're not just trying to say, here's the difference, right? Yeah, it makes sense. I'm a manufacturer. You want to go direct to the customer. Okay, I get it. I get it. You should do that. You're a manufacturer. You have every right to say you can go direct to the customer. But this is that's not just what's happening. General Mills has been going direct to the customer for years. This is different. What the manufacturers are now doing is saying, you know what? I'm going to invest in the marketplace disruptor, which is a direct, not just shot across the bow. It's a, it's, it's a direct shot at B2B distributors. It's very different. Manufacturer, you want to invest in direct to customer, whether it's consumer, whether it's business customer, go for it. But that's not what they're doing. They're saying, I'm going to invest in the thing which is unbundling your business model, B2B distributors. That's a very different thing that's happening. We need to recognize the difference here. And why that's so important is because, as I alluded to on my other video, talking about the Kojo Schneider thing and what Schneider is dealing with with this European takeover, they're trying to buy this like GE Digital in Europe and the whole deal is a cluster. And I predicted it would be a cluster on my last episode. Go check that out. But do these manufacturers actually understand what they're doing? And I don't think they do. I don't think they actually understand the end game as well as they should. Here's why. By supporting the disruptor, it's very different than the manufacturer going direct. By supporting the disruptor, what are you actually doing long term? You're creating a unicorn in the, in the immediate term. You're changing customer behavior, which typically cha- takes a long time to change, both from suppliers and business customers, especially business customers. It takes much longer to change that than consumers. That's why you see generally these marketplace platform models have taken off much more quickly in the B2C markets than in B2B. But now they're coming into B2B. But when you have the manufacturers actively supporting the digital disruption, you now are accelerating that clock time for that digital behavior from business customers to change faster. Which means you shorten the ability, you shrink the time that the distributors and and other manufacturers, the long tail of manufacturers, to adapt. And you accelerate the ability of a digital disruptor to get to some level of scale. Let's take a step back. I'm going to talk about Instacart in the clip after this. What happens when Amazon or Home Depot or fill-in-the-blank company, any of the big tech monopolies, any of the big retailers that are kind of doing marketplace activities on their own now, what happens when they say, oh, I'll buy Grub Market for like $4 billion? Sure. Why not? Or... Amazon, Home Depot, just saying, yeah, I'll buy Kojo for like $500 million. You know, they're only worth like 250 million bucks. Okay, yeah, I'll just buy them. Call it a day. Do you think Schneider, General Mills, these other manufacturers, CMix, Heidelberg, you think they have um, the ability to turn that deal down when these are basically investor-controlled businesses, right? And who are the investors? The investors are VCs. They're capitalists. Despite what they make you think, they're still capitalists. They need to make a return. So are they going to turn down Amazon's offer for $4 billion? Only if someone else offers them more money, like $5 billion, then they'll say, oh, yeah, sure. Walmart. Here you go, Walmart. $5 billion. Are uh, General Mills and Schneider saying, you know what? We want change to happen in this industry, but we don't want the change to do more harm than the old way of doing things. So if the change you're bringing about becomes unhinged, 
and you have no way to actually prevent what's happening in B2C all around us, which are these tech monopolies taking advantage of the suppliers, of the producers. And by the way, manufacturers, you're in the same boat. The manufacturers are the ones like Nike that have not figured out still to this day how to deal with Amazon and still then don't know how to deal with StockX and GOAT and the vertical specific sneaker marketplaces, right? Covered that on the show all the time too. I'll give you another example, right? Are the, if you're a manufacturer and you invest in a B2B marketplace, that's your right. But I don't think, I think everyone here would agree that you don't want Amazon, Walmart, Home Depot, pick, pick a big tech, re, re, dominant tech retailer slash marketplace or a big tech monopoly to go buy that marketplace, right? Because that a thousand percent is way worse than the change that you were trying to bring about to the channel than the current state of affairs. And, and maybe the, the rate of innovation moving too slowly for your liking, fill in the blank name of manufacturer, right? So I think there are solutions. I just don't see anyone putting them together. So for example, maybe what we should do is put together a poison pill that says, basically, if a manufacturer is going to invest, and, and, and you know what? I could even go put this together. Just like YC created the safe standard way for early stage investors to fund, you know, tech startups coming out of Y Combinator. Maybe we should create a common set of governance poison pill mechanism that says, you know what? We want to bring about change in this industry. We think there's a lot of value and opportunity. We think the, the pace of change needs to move faster. Fine. We can all agree on those things. But we don't want the same thing to happen in B2C. We don't want the same thing that's happening in B2C to happen in B2B. Can we all agree upon that? Digital, both startup d- digital disruptors and manufacturers, certainly distributors, and the business customers, by the way. No one wants to be holden to be beholden to an Amazon force in B2B. The, I guarantee you the country doesn't want that to happen. That would be so bad for our society, for our economy, for, for, oh my God, I mean, a whole slew of reasons, which the show has been talking about for years. Maybe that's what it is, right? You, you need to actually say, if you're going to take our money, well, here are the rules of the road, founder and other VC investors. If you want General Mills to get involved, if you want Schneider to get involved, you can't sell to certainly not Amazon probably not Walmart. And, you know, each vertical could be a little bit different, like Kojo to Procore, for example. But if you're not doing those things, and there's other solutions too, but if you're not doing those things and you're a manufacturer and you're enabling and actively not just participating, but investing dollars into these marketplaces, I think you're making a grave mistake. And I don't think you're truly factoring in the long-term impact of what you're doing to the industry. So back to what Grub Market is doing, which is very interesting, why they're on our original top 10 list. Is there actually a hybrid marketplace, just like many marketplaces are part marketplace, part linear. They're buying up a bunch of smaller regional distributors for things like produce or fresh meat, seafood, things that go bad, things that are very perishable, things that need to turn very quickly, things that are very hard to marketplace, right? How do you create a marketplace of like 
produce, which is going to go bad in a matter of weeks or days if you don't turn it. So it's very hard to say, well, how do you move that inventory in a more kind of consignment, asset light marketplace type of model? The answer is eh, it's really tough to do slash it doesn't really work. So what they're doing is they're buying all these linear regional produce, what I would call distributors of perishable stuff, highly perishable stuff. And then they're kind of marketplacing everything else, like the General Mills stuff. It's shelf stable. It's what you would call ambient. It's not going to go bad right away. Much easier to do in a 3P kind of marketplace type of fulfillment model. And then what Grub Market's doing is they also have this thing called Wholesale, Wholesaleware. If you go to wholesaleware.com. And wholesaleware.com is basically their cloud-based ERP. So they, what they're saying, their pitch is that we buy these perishable distributors, we digitize their business with our cloud-based ERP, which any, which any distributor, any wholesaler can use this ERP. The, the price of the ERP product is subsidized. It's going to be way less expensive than if you were to go get an Oracle or an SAP ERP installation. And the reason why Grub Market and Wholesaleware are subsidizing the price of this is because all your data is theirs once you use their ERP. Now they know every single piece of inventory that they that you have, they know how fast you move it. They probably have a pretty good idea of what you got what you bought it for and what you sell it for. So of course they're going to charge you something for this. But the real value to them is the data in the product that they're selling to you at a discount. You see this very often where we call it a linear hook, right? You give the technology away for free or at a subsidy. And in exchange for that, you get the network value, right? In this case, you get additional supply. You get visibility on supply, which then helps feed the demand that they can pipe in through their marketplace. Now, they're saying, we buy these produce, we buy these perishable distributors, we, we install our software, our ERP on them, and we make these things more profitable. How true that story is, I don't really know. Um, no one will really know for a long time. You know, they said they were going to go public this year. That didn't happen. So the company has had a lot of growth, but a lot of that growth is also coming from aggressive M&A, like extremely aggressive M&A. So the verdict is still out on will the strategy work for them? The verdict is still out is how much more profitable are they actually making these regional perishable distributors by using their own technology? You know, like say here for fresh food supply chain leaders. But again, what I like about this is a hybrid. They're, they're doing linear on the really tough stuff and then marketplacing the other stuff that's easier, not as perishable. Um, if I'm overgeneralizing here, but again, a big milestone, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get this money, especially in this environment, unless they were able to have real growth, not just from their M&A activities. I'm not trying to take away from that, but you know, some of this stuff on how successful some of the story is, is, is still to be determined. Other thing they say is they're the, amongst the largest providers of South American fruit in the United States. And they supply that perishable stuff to Costco and Walmart and Albertsons and Kroger and all these guys, which is interesting because they're not just catering to restaurants. They're also catering to retailers and grocery. Those are actually two very different parts of the supply chain. I think the retail and grocery obviously is where 
General Mills is more interested. And I mean, right here, General Mills. Rub Market's software-based approach is reimagining produce distribution. It's the unbundling of distribution. And these manufacturers are actively investing in it. So I love this article uh, from the information. Most of their stuff I find a little bit odd. But this one I loved. Why China's startup investors depend on U.S. IPOs. Hmm. Interesting. I thought China had a self-sufficient venture ecosystem and, you know, we needed to be beholden to them, not the other way around, right? You know, China, China, China. Guess not, right? Okay, why is that? Well, that's because China's economy is one big Ponzi scheme. It's kind of like all those weird crypto tokens that popped up where they say, hey, put in $100 to buy this weird token that you've never heard of. And then you do it. And then now your $100 is worth $50,000. Literally, it's happened to a friend of mine. $50,000. And then my friend's like, oh, I made $49,900. said, that's cool, man. So can you take the money out? He goes, no, but I, no, I can't take it out. But like, I made like $50,000. Or did he lose $100? That's China. And that is why the, article, the headline to this article is why China's startup investors depend on U.S. IPOs. Because China's a Ponzi. And U.S. investors, no one wants to talk about it, but U.S. investors can't get any damn money out of all these returns that they have on paper, but they can't get the money out. That's what this whole article talks about. That's the 32nd. I'll give you some more details now if you want to stick around and listen to the rest of it. But they go on to talk about this, these three letters called DPI, which is called the distribution to paid in ratio. <laughs> which means LPs were expressing, which are limited partners. These are the investors into VC funds. And then those VC funds make investments into startups. So these investors that give the money to the VC to manage, the VC is called the, the GP, the general partner. They make their money by taking their carry, so call it 20%, right, of all the profits. If they've got $100 million to manage and they make $100 million profit so they can return $200 million to investors, then that 20% carry equals $20 million of carried interest profit for the GP, for the fund managers. So the LPs were expressing particular concern about how much cash they were getting back relative to the capital raised. And so on paper, oh, look at this startup. They're raising more and more money. Bing, 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 bing. I invested in the A and now the thing is worth, you know, 10x that, which means on paper, investor, you've 10x your money, right? The problem was no one's actually getting exits. No one is actually able to exit the investment. There's no liquidity to actually cash in. So you have all these things that are on paper appreciating a lot. That's called a Ponzi, right? There's all this money flowing in, flowing in, and then everyone's bidding up these investments higher and higher and higher and higher. There's more to feed more and more and more and more growth. But you can't ever get your money out. And the moment everyone wants to pull their money out, the whole thing collapses. Where's Bernie Madoff? That's China. That's China for a whole bunch of industries. Basically, like, that's, that's China for pretty much every U.S. investor, period. I guess finally the VCs are figuring this stuff out. We figured this stuff out years ago, basically when we started the show years ago. Uh, well, actually before then, one of the reasons we started the show. Anyway, more details. 
this article does a good job explaining why that is because it kind of seems weird, right? Like, well, can't can't these Chinese companies go public in China? Actually, no, they can't. This is the Hong Kong exchange. Then there's the liquidity issue this thing talks about. The Hong Kong exchange daily turnover was 21 billion in 2021, and the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ are 400 to 500 billion each day. So it's 20 to 25 times the amount of turnover, volume, liquidity, right? So much greater, not even close. This is the Hong Kong exchange, not even the Shanghai exchange, which has even lower liquidity. This is the Hong Kong exchange. You know, that country which China just conquered and took over? Completely not okay. And I would imagine. Hopefully that this daily turnover for the Hong Kong exchange has gone down ever since China's really shown their true communist dictatorship cards. And then the other thing is that then if you want to go public, they talk about there's just not as much liquidity. And now, particularly now that Hong Kong was conquered by China um, against their free will. Thank you very much. And the U.S. really did nothing about it. So unfortunate. So then the Shanghai Stock Exchange created a star market subdivision, which was for, in 2019, uh, to help tech companies go public for this exact reason. However, it says, but they've established a clear preference for hard tech companies. So like semiconductor chips and, you know, robots and hard technology over social platforms, uh, e-commerce and other more commercial software businesses. So like social media businesses and all these things, right? The software businesses are not in vogue on the star market on the Shanghai Exchange, which is the thing created to try and promote software or or tech IPOs in China. Not to mention, then, the China Securities Regulatory Commission screens potential listings for sustainable profitability and largely dismisses unprofitable cash-burning tech startups, which is basically every single software IPO. So between the regulatory environment, the lack of liquidity, and investors' preference for hard technology businesses, if they are going to invest in technology at all, there's basically no strong exit potential in Chinese markets. We have a lot of power in this country. We're just very bad at wielding it, and we're way too easily divided and distracted. And I'm going to interview David Rubenstein and talk to him about this exact topic. So... This leaves a U.S. IPO as the best option for maximizing DPI. It's basically just <laughs> like actualizing a, retu- a proper return, actual cash. And then it goes on to talk about how there was a 119 Chinese companies public in the U.S. from 2011 to 2021, averaging 11 IPOs per year. And between 2015 and 2021 in China, between 2,500 and 2,800 Chinese startups received financing from Series B to growth stage kind of companies that are ready to go public, right? So it's 11 out of 2,500. 11 exits and then 2,500 private financings, right? They, none of them can actually realize a return until you have an exit event. And then they were saying how tech M&A is also not very active in China, and there's a lot of scrutiny and regulation there as well. and you know, what companies are going to buy other tech companies at inflated uh, multiples, it's, it's bad. It's Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. They've also been nuked by the regulation. Their market caps have significantly fallen. And we've covered that on the show many, many times as well. So 
Should we feel remorse for Chinese technology startups and their investors? No, we should not. This isn't personal. This is just business. This is the way the world goes. China's our enemy, straight up. We need to recognize that. We should not be putting money into our enemies. Startups, software startups. We shouldn't be doing it. We shouldn't be using TikTok. That thing should have been banned years ago. We're fools for continuing to even entertain an idea of a TikTok operating under like certain regulatory scrutiny from the United States. It's a complete joke. China's our enemy. That's their doing. That's not ours. Why would you invest in your enemy? That's what we should be asking. And I've talked and I've highlighted who these investors are before on the show. I've gone through the list of all the family offices, bunch of big money, big names on that list, pension funds, institutional investors, endowments, university endowments that are all investing in China when they should be investing in this country or other countries that don't have communist dictatorship regimes. And it's nothing saying that the software companies in China are bad, that they've done something wrong. But we need to recognize that when you operate underneath a communist dictatorship, you are ultimately building value for who? You're building value for the dictator, for the communist leaders. Not for yourself. And I'm going to go, that's my next example, is Zhang Yiming, the founder of ByteDance, ranked number 23 richest people in the world on paper. That guy is maybe worth $100 million. We need to stop deluding ourselves uh, that China's going to wake up one day, have an epiphany and say, oh, oh my God, I have erred in my ways. We should be friendly to the West. No, that's not how they view us. It's not how they'll ever view us. We've been fooled for 20 plus years. It's time to wake up and get smart. Stop supporting the enemy. So now, Zhang Yiming no longer lives in China. The guy lives in Singapore. You see these like buildings with this like boat on top of it that was actually built by this American billionaire. Sheldon Adelson built this thing. And um, Zhang, 39, has been spending much of his, this year overseas. His prolonged absence from China follows his departure as CEO and chair last year amid China's tech crackdown. People familiar with Zhang's situation said his decision to stay overseas mostly reflects China's tough COVID-19 restrictions. But his move and the changes in his role within the company over the past 18 months also followed the biggest clampdown on the tech sector in China's history. We've covered this extensively on the show. Here's the thing. The clip we just did saying how U.S. investors can't get any money out of their Chinese tech investments. It's all the same thing. In China, in a communist country, you don't own anything. It's communist. You know who owns it? The CCP. So Zhang... This guy is lucky to have left the country. You think Zhang would have willingly stepped down as CEO. Then he became chair of ByteDance, right, which owns TikTok. You think Zhang was willingly going to step down as CEO to chairman or from chairman to not being involved in his company at all? Absolutely not. This guy did it because he doesn't want to be killed. This guy left because China and the CCP and the powers that be are scary and really bad, evil people. And this guy doesn't want to die. That's why this guy left China, 100%. And he's saying, oh, it's COVID-19. You think if he came out and said, the CCP is evil, they'll break my legs in and put me in jail for the rest of my life, and that'd be nice if they don't kill me. That would be them being nice and, you know, um, treating him nicely. He can't say that. They'll definitely kill him, even in Singapore. 
These are really bad evil people that we're up against here, gang. Got to recognize that. And so this guy fled for his own safety. The guy probably has maybe $100 million in liquidity. Yeah, ByteDance doing all this revenue. Da, 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 da. Um, lofty valuation of $300 billion. Where is all that money? Oh, that's right. It's all on paper. Hmm. Um, doing over $50 billion in revenue. And they still say, oh, well, he's got voting control. John continues to hold super voting shares that give him control over ByteDance and its board of directors. It's all fake. It's all a facade. He doesn't have any control. Why would he leave his own company and flee to Singapore if he had super voting shares that gave him control over ByteDance and the board of directors? He doesn't have any control at all. You want to know who has control? The CCP. Because when they wanted to get a board seat, they got a board seat. When they wanted to install a whole floor of government regulatory officials to monitor all the data of TikTok and all of our U.S. users, they just did it. When they said, hey, well, we need to regulate free speech and what can be shown on ByteDance local properties in China, they just did it. They don't need to listen to Zhang one iota. Zhang, what did Zhang do? Yes, he made some money. Call it $100 million max. And he probably had to like smuggle that. That probably wasn't even easy if he has that amount of liquidity. Um, He made $100 million, which is a lot of money. And then what did he do? He enabled the devil. He enabled the communist dictators to have full control, even more control over the people of China and China's enemies. U.S. citizens, European citizens, South Asia, Southeast Asia. That's what Zhang did. Zhang built a great company for the Communist Chinese Party. And he made some pretty good money on his own. He gave a bunch of people jobs that can now have a job and make money that supports that job from other international users. That's, to me, what's so unique that ByteDance has been able to do. Unlike Alibaba, um, Tencent has tried a lot, but not been super successful. They've had to buy into things like Reddit and Epic Games um, and, and, and like the NBA and other things. And then Baidu, right? You know, they haven't really been able to expand outside of China, except for ByteDance. Very interesting. Yeah, would it be worth it to him? Would he do it all over again? Probably. But there's no way this company ever, ever, and its investors ever get anywhere near to that $300 billion valuation. And anyone that thinks they're going to get that is just being bamboozled and playing into the Ponzi. And it's not just Zhang who's left China. It's a bunch of others. Zhang is now the, tw- the world's 23rd wealthiest person with a net worth of $49 billion. Absolute fake news. Zhang's absence from China is largely an effort to avoid China's long quarantines and COVID-19 lockdowns. That's part of it, but that's not the real story. Fake news. Some other Chinese tech founders have permanently relocated to Singapore, and they go on to list some of these people. It's bad stuff. It's real bad stuff. It's really sad to see, frankly. We all got to recognize it. We, don't, we should not be supporting it. We shouldn't be using it. We shouldn't be investing in it. It's real dangerous stuff. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.